Hi, this is Crystal Cyrus from the OOTW podcast, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 218, My Bodyguard Movie Review. along with Derek Myers and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Now, we recently held a pop culture fantasy draft for the year 1980 and uh, Derek, you came away victorious on that one, so congratulations. And you you selected The Shining as the film that you wanted us to review and this week I went with My Bodyguard as my movie from 1980. But before we get to that, Derek, since last we spoke, uh, what pop culture have you been able to partake in, my friend? Uh, just a few things. Mm-hmm. Um, first, I want to uh, talk a little bit about music, and specifically okay. live music. All right, so as cool. I mentioned on the podcast, uh, a while back, my wife and I bought tickets to see Journey with very special guest Billy Idol. Right. And then, unfortunately, Billy Idol had to bow out. I mm-hmm. believe he got COVID or some sort of problem with his throat or something. I think it was throat something. He had throat surgery. So they're like, okay, wait, wait, wait. We're not going to cancel the show. We're going to replace Billy Idol. But don't worry, we found someone we feel can adequately fill Billy's shoes. And we were then going to be uh, graced with Journey and Toto. <laughs> you were going to cancel, and, right? Yeah, I was yeah. not looking forward yeah, to that. And then that got delayed. Then that got can- or rescheduled again. Mm-hmm. And because we went back down onto lockdown and all the rest of it, we're like, oh, no. And then they're like, okay, show's coming up for real this time. We guarantee it. Unfortunately, Toto is no longer available. And we've got somebody equally as good as Toto and better than Billy Idol. We're going to give you Ann Wilson of Heart. Oh, and we're like, hey, there we go. That's, that's awesome, man. Uh, that's a decent switch up. I'll take that. That's yes. definitely, I mean, hey, Toto has some some good songs, but I, I don't necessarily think I need to hear an hour of Toto. Like, just come out, play your one song yeah. and go away. But Ann Wilson, Wilson of Heart, I'm like, she's going to sing all the heart singer. songs. Yeah. She's got a new solo album she's just put out. I'm like. That, I was very pleased with that switch up. And then they're like, would you like a refund? And I'm like, no, no, I'm going to go see this show. Yep. Journey and Ann Wilson of Heart. Yep. Fine. I, I can live with that. Like, great. Well, the show uh, is supposed to be uh, later this week, Friday the 13th. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, yesterday, one of the members of Journey tested positive for COVID. Oh, and they have canceled, pardon me, postponed the four remaining dates on their tour. Oh, uh, one of which is here in Toronto. So I don't know if we're going to actually see these bands if they're like right now, it's like, you know, it's in quotation marks. You can literally hear them air quoting postponed. Mm-hmm. But if you were a member of Journey and like those got to be what in their 60s at least. Oh, God. Yeah. And you've and you've been doing this tour that's been start and stop and start and stop and start and stop and COVID protocols and masks and checks and, and all that jazz. And then one of your guys gets COVID. Like, I mean, Hey, across my fingers, I hope he recovers and, and doesn't have any crazy symptoms and, and certainly doesn't get worse, but let's assume he bounces back and he's fine. Do you honestly think those guys are gonna be like, yeah, let's go out and finish those four days 
No, I think they're going to say, you know what? We're done. We got our money. We did most of the shows. Sorry, the people that didn't get those last four shows, including yours truly. So I have a suspicion a refund will be coming my way. But just, you know, I was looking forward to the show. But uh, at this point, I I think I'd rather just take the money and cut my losses. Do you know, like, how many of the original members of the band that are still there? Because I remember Randy Jackson. Remember, he used to be on American Idol. He was the bass player for Journey for a while there, I thought. I honestly, I don't know. I'm not that Steve familiar Perry with the ins and outs of the band. Him, right? So, well, I know the lead singer got replaced. Oh, they've got did. a Filipino oh, okay. guy that that came in that sounds just like him and just oh, apparently man. puts on a way better show. Really, because Steve um, Perry is one of the greatest rock singers of all time. Well, there uh, again, I was I was really looking forward to the show. Mm. So, I mean, and I, I hope I hope that it is air quotes postponed and they reschedule because right now it says refunds will not be provided keep your original tickets right. uh we will eventually be coming back to your neighborhood we'll see but anyway so that was a little disappointing but sure uh it, it is what it is but i also had a chance to watch two movies in this past week oh, so good. What'd you watch? the first one well we went to the theater to see the new offering from the marvel cinematic universe oh you doctor strange oh, yeah. multiverse of madness oh, yeah and uh, I think I read that this was the 28th movie in the Marvel franchise. Wow. This does not include any of their TV spinoffs uh, that are on Disney Plus or any of that jazz. This is like literally just movies. This is their 28th full length feature mm-hmm. film, which just is like crazy balls. So anyway, we went to the theater and you have a certain expectation from a Marvel movie. You know, you put out 28 of these things. Your fans sort of have certain expectations. Honestly, I, I didn't care for it. In fact, I disliked really? it to the point where this was probably one of my least favorite Marvel movies I've seen of the 28. I've heard now, the in all opposite. Fairness, I've heard people that have said it's fantastic. So that's interesting. So for me, part of it is I've never really been a big fan of the of the character Doctor Strange. Mm-hmm. Um, for like from a comic book perspective, with most of the other stuff, I've been familiar with the comic books. I have this long lasting relationship with these characters and finally seeing them on the screen has been like a huge plus. And with Dr. Strange, it's like, eh, not again, not really my thing. The other thing is this movie was directed by Sam Raimi who cut his teeth as a, as a horror film director. And now, yeah. And now he also did the first two Spider-Man movies with Tobey Maguire back in like 2000 and 2002, 2003. Mm -hmm. So he's got his, he knows his way around a superhero movie and he knows his way around a horror movie. And I, this was supposed to sort of be a horror movie slash superhero movie. I, I didn't feel it was, you know, horrific in the sense of a traditional horror movie, but you could certainly see how it leaned on those tropes. There was a lot of like, uh, you know, uh, things that like where the bodies were all mangled and, and, and ghosts and demons and skeletons and stuff like that. Um, and it features, uh, you know, the, the characters from the Marvel comics that are sorcerers and warlocks and witches. And so there's there's definitely that thematically going on, which, again, I, I just I couldn't care less. It's like, oh, it was spectacular visual stuff. And I'm like, eh, I, it just it didn't do it for me. And, and you're right. I think a lot of people have were were very pleased mm-hmm. and enjoyed it a lot. And they liked that it was a little different than the other movies. And they liked that if they were going to go to the theater to see something that it was this big visually spectacular thing. And I can appreciate all of that, but it, it just, it wasn't my cup of tea. I knew like about 30 minutes into it. I'm like, I don't think I'm going to like this. And I, I didn't really, didn't really like it so much. So what was the that other was the other one was a documentary. For 40 days and 40 nights, watch documentaries. 
likes to learn about the world is Derek's Documentaries. Derek's Documentaries. Please do share. All right. It was called Like a Rolling Stone, The Life and Times of Ben Fong Torres. Do you know who Ben Fong Torres is? I thought it was going to be Bob Dylan. (laughs) No. So Ben Fong Torres is one of the original writers of the Rolling Stone magazine. He was there from the very beginning, and he is arguably one of the most famous rock journalists that's ever written. Um, The documentary follows his his life story, his participating in the Rolling Stone magazine, his interaction with a ridiculous amount of insanely famous musicians and this long-lasting relationship he's had with so many of them because of the way that he helped so many of them gain a following in a time where there was no internet and there was only three TV channels and radio was very... Um, restrictive and you didn't have MTV or anything of that nature and so a lot of the US and North American markets they they what they learned about their favorite musicians came from reading magazines like Rolling Stone magazine and apparently a lot of bands just felt that Ben Fong Torres was the guy that had to do the interviews and and got to a point where they were like Rolling Stone, we're happy to give you an exclusive, but it has to be this guy or we're not talking to you. <laughs> and um, there was just there was so many um, so much stuff they showed, so many behind the scenes things. Uh, apparently, he became like really good friends with the doors. He was really good friends with Paul McCartney. He was really good friends with the Grateful Dead, uh, Bob Dylan, Santana, um, uh, Steve Martin. He did a whole thing on Steve Martin that like really just helped propel his career when he was just starting out. He had he put him on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. And uh, yeah, like he was the guy. And um, one of the one of the angles, like one of the things they really highlight in the trailer is, do you remember the movie uh, from around? I think it was two thousand two thousand one called Almost Famous. Yes. Yeah. With um. So with uh, Goldie Hawn's daughter. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Kate Hudson. Yeah. Uh, I think she won an Oscar for that, if I remember correctly. She did. Best supporting um, actress. Yes. Yes. So it, it, that movie features a young teenage kid who goes on the road with this band mm-hmm. and is writing an article about them for Rolling Stone magazine. And this is loosely biographically based on Cameron Crowe, who is the writer director of that movie and his experience as a young teenager doing something similar to this in the movie and in real life. Cameron Crowe was was given this opportunity by Ben Fong Torres, who was his boss, who was his editor. So that was sort of how they teased the original trailer on Netflix is they show you that little scene from Almost Famous where they have their first telephone conversation. And then they're like, this guy that was partly the inspiration for a part of this movie, he was a real guy. And here's a story of this real guy's life and how important and influential he was. So if you're a music nerd and this sounds even marginally interesting to you. I, I think you're going to really enjoy it. He had a, a fascinating career. He was friends with a ridiculous amount of famous people, musicians, and just um, art, art personalities. Um, like Eddie Leibovitz was the photographer at his wedding. Like he just was connected to so many important pop culture icons through the '60s, '70s, '80s, '90s, and he still. Uh, a big name in the industry and he does a lot of charitable work now where he like does um, um, things where they'll have like a benefit and they'll sell tickets and he'll reach out to the people that he's met over the years and say like, oh, well, will you come out and make an appearance or, or sing some songs and help raise money for these charities? And 
yeah, and apparently he's written a ton of ton of books, a bunch of biographies, and uh, yeah, it was fascinating. And the music in the thing was great. So it's called Like a Rolling Stone, The Life and Times of Ben Fong Torres. It's on Netflix. It's probably right near the top of the list because it just came out. But it was it was a really strong one. So I know some of our friends, like our good friend Greg Martin, big music guy, he will love this. Very cool. Um, a couple of weeks ago, Derek, I mentioned how I had the chance to watch two movies from the 80s that I used to like when I was a kid. And one was good. The Principal, I mentioned that one. And one was Bad Prom Night, if you remember when I talked about them. Yes. So this past yep. week, I had the chance to, to once again watch two movies from the 80s that I used to like when I was young. And once again, funny enough, watching them 40 years later, I came to the conclusion that one was bad and one was good. So I'll start with the bad one. Neighbors from 1981. Oh my God, this movie was terrible. And that's got Belushi in it, right? Yeah, I mean, this is coming from the biggest John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd fan of all time with me. Um, mm-hmm. This movie was awful. Like, I know there was all these behind the scenes issues, you know, with the cast and the script and the director. Like, but I mean, is it a comedy? Is it a drama? Is it a horror? I remember like test audiences didn't know what it was. And the thing that really stood out to me watching it all these years later is the score in the film. The score in this movie is the worst score of all time in the history of movies. And the thing was, I originally saw this movie in the theater. I remember I was 11 years old and my my friend's dad took us to go see this. And this is when they had the the rating called adult accompaniment. You could get in with yep. an adult. Yep. Um, I, and I've only ever seen it um, since then on VHS, you know, back in the 80s and the 90s. And I never noticed, like now I'm watching it like on my big screen TV on high def. I never noticed for it. Dan Aykroyd's wearing these blue contact lenses in this movie. But I don't know, this, this whole movie is just a god awful disaster. God, it was terrible. So it was bad. The good one was another movie from 1980 because we've been doing them a lot lately. Stir Crazy. I don't know if oh, I was inspired yeah, one. the other week when we were talking about Stir Crazy. I'm like, I had a chance. I'm going to watch it. Oh, my God. Right from the opening song where um, Gene Wilder is singing the song. Oh, so good. Sidney Poitier directed this film. And, and Richard Pryor, man, he was something else. I forgot how much of a force of nature that Richard Pryor was. But Gene Wilder just stood out to me. He was just, God, he was unique. And the scene at the beginning, too, when um, the waitress goes into Richard Pryor's bag and, and gets his grass and she puts it in the soup and the salad and they think it's oregano and all this. Just, that movie was really good. It was really, really entertaining from beginning to end. So I thought that was that was really good. So kind of neat. I, had a, I never, ever have a chance to do anything. But, uh, you know, and for the second time in a couple of weeks, I've been able to watch some old 80s movies and, and, and come to some conclusions on some of the stuff that I used to like. And, uh, yeah, some of it was good, some of it not so good. But uh, from old movies to old jokes, here we go. Here's your dad joke of the week. Derek, so I don't know if you've heard about this, but George Clooney, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Matthew McConaughey have recently got together to make a movie. So George Clooney said, I'll direct. Leo DiCaprio said, I'll produce. And Matthew McConaughey said, I'll write, I'll write, I'll write. Oh. 
That was terrible. Let him write them from now on. <laughs> He's got to write the jokes from now on, maybe. Yeah. Can't do any worse. I'm your head counselor. I did not enjoy this anymore the second time. <laughs> What's going on? What's wrong? Never seen it. Oh, Never wow. interested in seeing it. No desire to see it. Was not interested at all. Oh, I paid $200 for these shoes, but I mean, on the best. It's certainly tame by today's standards. There's a very fat pair of pants hanging from the flagpole this morning. It is not something I think I ever need to see again. Oh! Matt Damon. Matt Damon. All right, my friend, it was over to me this week to pick a movie from our draft year of 1980. And, you know, like sometimes movies are personal. And that's definitely the case with My Bodyguard for me. So in, in 1980, this is a bit of a setup. Back then, I moved to a new town. I was, I was 10 years old and I was relentlessly bullied. And the thing was, it wasn't until I fought back that the bullying stopped. So needless to say, this movie struck a chord with me back then and it still resonates with me to this day. But the thing is, this is not only just like a personal film, it's a good, good movie. And back in the 80s, you got to remember, we, all, we always talk about how you got to take, you know, movies within the context of when they're set. Back in the 80s, teen movies were all about sex and nudity. And the characters were usually one-dimensional. Um, but then you've got this movie that's completely different. You know, it's not about sex or, or, or like peeking in the showers like in Porky's or it's not filled with like misogyny or racism like Revenge of the Nerds. We've talked about that. But instead, this movie is about real teenagers going through real issues like things like isolation and, and loneliness and friendship and even mental health issues. For me, it, it's a real film about real issues and, and it doesn't exploit teens in any way. So I know it's not the big splashy Marvel movies that you're used to, Derek, but and the other thing was, you kept referring to this movie. You know, we've talked about it before. You've never seen it. You just I've never saying, seen it before this week. Yeah, you're like, this is that dumb movie that you're going to force me to watch. So, yeah, I did. I finally forced you to watch it. So uh, now that you've seen it, what are your first impressions of My Bodyguard? Uh, I didn't care for it, but I did feel that it, it had... There were a few things in it that I, I thought were good, but for the most part, I, I didn't care for it. I thought... It was really slow getting set up. Like I watched the first 30 or so minutes and just kept thinking, oh my God, like something happened. This is so boring. And the music was driving me bananas. It sounded like something you would hear at a Renaissance fair from people that are either hungover or haven't practiced enough. And it just seemed really, just seems so bizarre. The the musical choices in this movie, especially at the beginning. Um, I, I found that, the whole part about the mom and the dad and the hotel, like just seemed completely unnecessary. Like they could have established that he was new to the school very quickly without any of that blah, blah going on. I just didn't feel any of that was necessary. Um, but I did, I did, um, uh, I did appreciate, I did like the things like you were saying, like the, the parts with Linderman, when you sort of, they, they, they explore sort of what's his story and why is he the way he is and how do people perceive it and how does he fight back or not fight back or dispute or not dispute some of these rumors. So some of it, I, some of it, I, I could sort of get into a little bit. Um, I definitely like the, like if it was sort of like 
you divide it into thirds. Like, I, I think I liked Act 2 the best. I didn't really yeah. care for the beginning, and I really disliked the ending. Really? But I felt sort of the middle was where it really had legs. And um, I don't know. I, I just – I think the – I think the way, like like you said, it's really of its time, and I just had a hard time watching it, and there was all this bullying going on, and, like, nobody was, like, none of the adults that were involved really gave a crap about it. Like, they were like, well, you know, whatever, I could, you know, uh, um, we're going to suspend you, or, or, you know, we're going to give you a detention. It's like, really? Like, he's he's clearly extorting these children and stealing their money. Like, how is this not a crime? But I know in the moment, in the because time... Because it's from 1980. That's how it was handled. Yeah. Yeah. So I just had such a hard time wrapping my head around that. Like, it took me right out of the movie. But anyway, yeah. we'll do a deeper dive. But that's yeah, sort of my we, initial... We, I think you made you made some interesting points. I like the, some of the points you made about the, the second act, which I think is the strongest in the movie. Um, I think the ending um, is, is actually great, but uh, we'll get into that. So the movie is directed by Tony Bill. Now, he was previously an actor. Um, he also directed Untamed Heart in 93. Did you ever see that one with Christian Slater no, and Mar- Marissa Tomei? It's, it was quite nope. good, too. Okay, so this movie stars Chris Makepeace, Martin Mull, and Ruth Gordon, and it was the film debut for Adam Baldwin, Joan Cusack, and Jennifer Beals. Now, Matt Dillon had already done Over the Edge and Little Darlings prior to this, um, the movie had a budget of $3 million. It made $22 million at the domestic U.S. box office. So that was good enough for 22nd place that year. It finished just ahead of Fame and Altered States, just behind Raging Bull, American Gigolo, and Xanadu. You know, one of my favorites. Okay, so I want to talk about the cast a little bit because I think this is one of the strong parts of the film. Chris Makepeace. Let's start with him. Uh, he's Canadian cool. with his hair, man. I know his, his hair was hair always like, a thing. It, again, of the moment of the time, it's like watching a '70s movie and they're all dressed in like bell bottoms and big collars, and you're like, "Dude, what were you thinking?" I'm watching this movie, going, "Please, somebody get this kid a haircut." <laughs> <laughs> so, I always liked him. He's a Canadian actor. Um, he was also in one of my all-time favorite movies, Meatballs. Um, he did a couple of made-for-TV movies after this, like he did the the Terry Fox story and Mazes and Monsters with Tom Hanks. That was about Dungeons and Dragons. That's right up your alley, Derek. You ever heard of that one? I've heard of it. I heard yeah. it was terrible. Uh, anyway, so then after that, he pretty much just stopped acting. Like, he he did move behind the camera as an assistant director, but uh, he hasn't really done a whole lot since the early 80s. And it's too bad, because I, I always thought he was really good. He was very, very unique. You know, I think Hollywood probably just didn't really know what to do with him. But... I always thought he really pulled off that kind of low-key, vulnerable character that I, I think a lot of people can relate to. And like I said before, I mean, at a time when teen movies were all about like sex antics and obnoxious characters, here you've got Chris Makepeace, who was just this low-key, regular, everyday teenager who just struggled like all the rest of us. I think he was very mm-hmm. relatable. I don't know. Yeah, definitely. I I mean, at its core, the movie it, like the, the you know, the elevator pitch for this movie is pretty, pretty decent. It's, you know, kid goes to a new high school uh, is clearly not one of the popular kids gets bullied by, you know, the bullies and, um, you know, tries to fight back unsuccessfully and then gets the, the clever idea to, you know, hire an even bigger kid to be his bodyguard. Like right. uh, so I, I, on its face, I mean, it's a pretty solid plot in the sense that um you know and it works it worked then it could work now there's a lot 
that you can a lot of areas to explore. There's certainly a lot of characters uh, along the way that we meet in this movie. But even if you were to just, you know, we talk about like, well, is this something that could be remade? I mean, this this idea has probably been used a dozen times since this. Uh, and I got to think that there's always some way that, to put a fresh spin on it. So, you know, on its face, I think the, the concept of the movie works. I just there's a lot of a lot of stuff in this that I just didn't really care. For. Well, we'll keep going into it. You know, I mean, yep. it's OK to be wrong. Uh, so moving on with the cast, Matt Dillon, want to talk. He was absolutely perfectly cast in this movie yeah, because he's kind of good. Like he's a good looking guy, but he has this kind of dark, sinister thing going on. And, and I think that's probably why he never really made it as a huge movie star, you know, like as a leading man type. Like, I mean, he was mm-hmm. in Little Darlings before this, like I mentioned. Um, and even in that movie, he's not very likable. He plays this scumbag in There's Something About Mary. And you just hate his guts and crash when you see him in that. But like I say, he's a perfect actor to play Moody. He's that typical bully that we all knew in high school. You know, like good looking, but like slick and oily, smarmy. I thought he was phenomenal in this role. Yeah, I thought he did a pretty good job. I, uh, again, I, I didn't really have any any um, issues with the performances. I thought the actors did a decent job with what they had. For me, it was more just some of the finer points of the story that that I, I just had a hard time wrapping my head around and relating to. Because the movie was nominated and actually won an award for its script. But um, Adam Baldwin, I want to mention, too, um, he played Linderman. His career never really took off. Like, he was in DC Cab, and he was in Independence Day. That's right. He was in DC Cab. He was the lead role in that one. And he was in Independence Day. And more recently, he's been a a little bit vocal about his support of right-wing politics. I mean, he hasn't gone full mega like uh, Scott Bayo or Ricky Schroeder or those guys but um, he was great in this movie. I thought Ricky Linderman, he was just perfectly cast because you believe that he's this totally scary kid at school. Like he wears the army fatigues and stuff. And then there's all these rumors about him that he, he killed a cop or he beat up a teacher. Or he like raped old ladies and none of it's true. You know, like just like typical high school rumors about, about people, right? And he doesn't even say anything for the longest time in the movie. You know, and then when he does, you learn he's just a scared kid. He's basically living through, you know, PTSD because his brother was killed, right? When they were like playing with a gun. So I thought he was great in this movie. So although I thought he did a good job, I thought he was grossly miscast because he looked to be about 10 years older than everyone else. Mm -hmm. And I really had a hard time believing that he was supposed to be in the same class with these other kids. Um, now I get the idea that hey, if he's if he's had this family trauma and he's maybe not been in school for a year, maybe he's you know they've they've held him back or he just right. his parents removed him from school. Sure, he's maybe let's say a year older, but then the the nerdy kid with the red hair, Carson, mm-hmm. like you're telling me that his character and Linderman are only supposed to be one year apart. Right. Like not a chance. There's no no believable scenario where I where I believe that. So. Okay. Uh, Joan Cusack, I want to mention, because this was her first movie. And she was so good in this. It's a really small part, but it's very memorable. Um, Like, she's very charismatic. But I think at the heart of it all, just like the other characters, she's just this scared teenager just trying to make it through high school. 
you know the mm-hmm. scene when when moody asks her if she wants to go to the movies on saturday yeah oh, and she's all smiles and she's like okay sure he's like yeah have a real fun time by yourself you know just that look on her face in that scene she's just crushed you know god moody's a bastard god and cliff mm-hmm. says that at the but, end too, but this know? and this is part of the problem that i have with this movie is I didn't understand why this character that was the bully was being the was acting the way he was acting. Like I, I, I guess for me, I just I never really understand in movies like this. Like you have these bully characters, and it's like, why are they being such? D-ks? Like it just it, they don't there there is no context provided in this story that explains why they are this way. And bullies I mean, are bullies, say, man. Bullies are bullies. But I don't get it. I, yeah. I mean, I guess I we don't, don't necessarily have to dig into their backstory and get an origin story on them. They're d- right. But why? So, like, I don't I couldn't understand why this person was like this. Like, was he abused at home? Is that it? Like, and not that I necessarily needed all of that part of the story to work out. But just I don't know. In movies like this, I always have a really hard time understanding why the bully behaves the way they do um i guess and, and I that, guess that was the, part of the reason that i didn't didn't like that was one of the big strikes for me against this movie is i, I thought I guess, he played a good bully i just didn't understand why he was being this way all the time i would say at the end of the day who gives a <laughs> bullies are bullies and for them to lash out at other people you know like like linderman look at linderman's life linderman had a rough life right he didn't go around picking on kids picking on kids that were smaller than him everybody was smaller than him Right. He looked like he was 10 years older. You said so yourself. Right. So he had a rough life. He didn't pick on other kids. Cliff's had it hard. Like he's he doesn't you know, he, he feels left out. He doesn't pick on other kids. Right. So, you know, screw the bullies lashing out at other kids and extorting other kids and getting together with some of the other tough kids to try and beat up on guys that are weaker than them or more scared than them. You know, who gives a crap where they come from? I don't know. That's what I think. Yeah, I don't know. I just I, I just I couldn't. uh I don't know. I, I, I just, it was a big gap for me. I couldn't understand. And I'm not, I'm not saying like, oh, they have a bad life. Oh no, you have to feel sorry for them. Like, hey, right. no, you're right. They're, d-ks, they're jerks. They, they deserve to get their ass whooped. And it's like, I, I'm okay with that part of the story. I just, I just, I really didn't understand. And I, and this is so common with so many of these movies. I just like, I don't understand why so many of these bullies act like the act the way they do and it just maybe makes no you sense. maybe oh, you were a little bit more sheltered maybe you're more sheltered in maybe, high school i mean maybe and that's you didn't it, confront but bullies like, but i think you know for those of us that have confronted bullies it's like who cares what the reasons are they're bullies you know and mm-hmm. and they're jerks um i want to talk about ruth gordon a little bit man she was around forever you know like she started in theater um she started off in the in, uh, doing stuff like peter pan and then she was in silent films and then she was in a couple of Gen X movies that, that really stood out. So, Derek, have you ever seen the 1974 movie Harold and Maude? I started watching it and just could not get into it, but I've heard very good things about it. It's amazing. Like, I mean, it's... Give it a chance. It's unlike anything... I was going to say, if you, if you nominate it on this podcast, I'll watch it, but that's sort of the motivation I need. I've right. tried it. Somebody else that I whose opinion I greatly respect at university mm-hmm. said, like... You have to watch this, mm-hmm. and I just couldn't, couldn't get into it. Um, you really should watch. It. I mean, it's about this relationship between Ruth Gordon, you know, who's like in her seventies at the time, and she has a relationship with this young teenage boy played by a Bud Court, yeah. and he's all obsessed with like suicide and and all this dark imagery, and and she basically makes him realize how how amazing 
life is and how how it can, right. good it can be. I, I've seen I've seen the Something ending of, oh. of Harold and Maude, so I yeah. understand sort of. It's one of those ones where it's like, you know, Rosebud was the sled. Okay, now go back and watch Citizen Kane. And you're like, oh damn it! Like, the big it's, payoff's been spoiled for. Yeah, by the it, it's for a real Season hidden Kane. gem, though. Kind of like this movie, I think is. Oh, and she, of course, she was also in Any Which Way You Can, which we just mentioned like the other week well, on the podcast. Well, that I've seen, of course. Yeah. She she was Ma. She was Clint Eastwood's mom or not. Martin Mull was the dad. I've always liked him. He was an actor out of Chicago. Uh, he was on Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman uh, with Louise Lasser. And then he was on the spinoff Fernwood Tonight. He was in Roseanne. And, I always um, remember him from Roseanne. He was the boss in Roseanne. Yes, and he was Terry Garr's boss in Mr. Mom as well. So I, I liked him. I thought he was good. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, no, and he, he's one, he's like a that guy. He appears yeah. in so many things. Exactly. Like, oh, I totally know that guy from, where do we know that guy from? Yeah. He's got a ridiculously long IMDb. He's been in everything. The principal, you mentioned him, how we were talking about the adults in the in the movie, when he's like, you know, I ought to suspend you, but, you know, since no real damage was done, I'll just let you off with detention. Um, it, you know, um, and the thing is, when that, in that scene, you just know Cliff's going to get it because it's like, of course, okay, oh God. But anyway, the principal was played by uh, Joan and John Cusack's dad, Dick Cusack. He was an actor uh, oh. doing bit parts in Chicago for years, and he played that part. So that was interesting. And the one of the other adults, like you mentioned, they, like they didn't do a whole lot, but also, you know, like what were they supposed to do? Like in the moment, you know, back then in 1980, the one I want to mention is Ms. Jump. Remember Clarice Jump, the, the teacher? Catherine Grody was the actress's name. Now, she only ever did just a few small bit parts. I remember her in a movie with Richard Dreyfuss called Whose Life Is It Anyway? Back around the time that this came out. But anyway, she's married to Mandy Patinkin. Really? Yeah. Oh, they've been married wow. for like 40 years. Wow. Yeah. Nice. I thought, I, thought she, I thought she was great in this small part that she had. The scene between her and Moody in the classroom, and then especially mm-hmm. I think the scene between her and Cliff... When she's yeah. telling him what she knows about Ricky yeah. Linderman, I thought she was very, very good in this movie. Um, another guy I want to mention was Hank Salas. So he played Mike. Now, he only ever did this, and he did another movie that I know you know, Dr. Detroit. He was uh, Which I've never seen, walk- but I know of it. Oh, you know it. He, he, did, he was Smooth Walker's bodyguard in that, in that one. That was, uh, that was Howard Hessman's uh, part. Um, other than that, he didn't do anything else. But I thought he was so good in this movie. Like, he was perfect. He was mean. <laughs> he was scary. Like, man, oh, man, if I was Linderman, I'd been terrified of this guy, too. Like like you said, he was he was like an adult. He was like a real adult. You know, like he was growing up. They were all teenagers. Oh, man, Moody did not play fair. I wanted to mention a couple of cameos as well, which I'm sure you noticed. Sure. George Went was one. Yes. And yeah, Tim Kazarinsky air conditioner was repairman. Yes. Tim Kazarinsky as well. They were both at Second City in, in Chicago at the time. And they both obviously had small parts here. Like you said, they were the, like a repair mechanic or whatever the hell they were, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. George Went, obviously, Norm from Cheers. Tim Kazarinsky was on Saturday Night Live. And he also had a had bit parts in um, About Last Night and Neighbors. The movie I just mentioned that was so bad. I, I um, always remember him from, uh, was he, not, he was in the Police Academy movies, wasn't he? Yes, he was. You are correct. That's where yes. I recognized him from. Yes. And a couple other ones. Dean Devlin. So, 
Um, I don't know if you know Dean Devlin. He went on to, to be, he left acting and went on to be a producer and, and he, he produced Independence Day. Maybe that's why Adam Baldwin got a part in that movie. I don't know. That's interesting because he knew him from this one. Maybe. But and Jennifer Beals too. I don't know. She was in like a blink and you'll miss her scene. She was a bit of an extra, but uh, she was one of the, the students in class. So they didn't have any lines or anything like that. I think the producers basically just shot the movie in Chicago and they just like said, hey, we'll just tap into the local actors you know, for, for the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the characters here. So a couple of themes in this movie, um, you kind of touch base on the beginning. I want to dig in them a bit. The idea of coming of age, okay? Like you've, you've, you've heard this term for several movies, and, but a lot of the time it's about sex. You know, like movies like Fat yes. Times at Ridgemont High. It's yeah. all about like coming of age. You know, you start you start feeling, oh, what are these feelings I'm having about like, these about sex and then acting on those feelings and all that. And and this was this prevalent theme back in the 80s. And they usually dealt with it with like raunchy comedy, right? But here, instead, this movie, Coming of Age, is something different, right? It's about growing up and having to deal with, you know, difficult situations that sometimes require some ingenuity. And it has to do with, you know, change like moving to a new city or you know having to stand up for yourself but i think most importantly and this is where the second act of the film comes in it means developing meaningful relationships and friendships you know sometimes with people that have completely different backgrounds than you do you know mm-hmm. i thought this movie was all about coming of age and the other thing running to the principal like you said it just doesn't it doesn't work it didn't work back then, you know, not back in 1980. So, so Clifford has to get creative, right? And he's obviously a smart kid, like he's good in school. So he, he comes with the, up the idea of the bodyguard, you know, deal with the bullies. And, you know, who better than the kid that all the, the people are afraid of? But I thought that was a really good theme in this film. It was about coming of age. And it meant something different than a lot of the other 80s movies. That much you can admit, I'm sure. Yeah, no, and I, I think that's a good way to put it is is most of these coming-of-age movies are all about the teen sex comedy, and, and this definitely um, addresses that same theme, but in a very different way. So, yeah, I can certainly appreciate that. Another theme is is, is friendship, and and this is where I think you, you, you were kind of really, really hit on something, because I think, too, some of the best parts of this movie are, are in the middle, kind of in the second act, when... Yeah. When Cliff and, and Ricky kind of develop their friendship, I mean, Cliff is rich and, and Ricky's poor and Cliff comes from this, you know, loving family and and Ricky's brother was was killed, you know, when they were playing with their dads on Lock Gun. And yet these guys become friends and it's Cliff that really pushes the friendship and eventually, mm-hmm. you know, kind of, you know, you know, gets Ricky to let him in. But the scenes when they're going through the junkyards and they find the... Uh, they're looking for like a carburetor or whatever it is that they're looking for. And yeah, some piece for the motorcycle. And when they find it and then they're like riding triumphantly all around Chicago. And at one point they each take turns standing on the back of the bike, you know, with their arms up in the air. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. they've totally bonded. I, I, I think like, like, I think it's a good script and, and like any good script, everything goes to hell in the second act. And so Moody hires his own bodyguard, Mike. And, and then you, that's his, this is a big part of the movie because this is where you learn Ricky is just a scared teenager, just like everybody else, right? He's not this cop killer. You know, he's just a scared kid. And and let's face it, Mike is a scary dude. He's got that towel around his neck. 
and he's got the shaved head. Back in 1980, like this wasn't common like today, where people had mm-hmm. you know shaved heads. It was kind of intimidating, you know. And yeah. and I I think just this friendship between them kind of comes through in the end because they both defeat their their respective bullies. So I, I really like that middle part too. I think you're onto something there. I didn't uh, I didn't really. I, I didn't really find the part with um, with Mike as the as the bully's bodyguard that believable in the sense that um, at least Adam Baldwin's character of Linderman was supposed to be a high school student, whereas Hank seemed to be, or rather Mike. Uh, sorry, I'm looking at his IMDb thing here. Uh, Mike, the, the actor, yeah, yeah. So Mike was clearly an adult. Yes, and so. What I'm getting out of this is a high school student went to an adult and said, here's some money, beat up a kid in my class. Yeah. And nobody thought to notify an authority figure and say, like, this adult is going, you know, is threatening these teenagers. Now, I know it's of its time and that's but, probably but not. They went, happen, but they went to adults before that. And what did adults do? Nothing. The teacher didn't do anything. The principal didn't do anything. The dad just contacted the principal. Going to going to adults is not the solution here. They've got to deal with it themselves. Well, I don't know. And then the idea that um, at least that what I was getting out of it was that that the, the you know the bully's bodyguard Mike had been had agreed to do this because of what Moody had told him. This kid in our class has done these things, and he you know he raped this lady, and he killed this kid, and mm-hmm. blah blah blah. And then Mike even confronts Linderman and, and accuses him of all these things. And it's like, really, are you dumb enough to think that a high school student did all those things and was allowed to walk back in the high school? Like, I don't know. There was just a lot of things that as someone in the audience, we were sort of, yeah, yeah, like expected to just take at face value and believe that nobody would question these things. And, I, and that that was a big problem for me with this with this movie mike this is where jerk. that sort of third mike, act started to fall apart for me nah, mike was a jerk moody was a jerk they're doing anything for money right there's a lot of jerks in this world i mean again yes. not to say that you've led a sheltered life but i mean like there's a lot of bad people in the world that's really what it what it's saying um i want to circle back to something you mentioned at the beginning about the music because i think you're incorrect here i want to talk a little sure. bit about the score so dave grusen did the score for this movie and i think it's absolutely perfect now this guy has Dave Grusin has done a lot of movie scores over the years. His style is is it's very unique. You always know it's him just from the style and the sound of the music. So he has been nominated for eight Oscars for original score. He won the Academy Award for for best score for the Malagro Malagro Beanfield War in '88. I've heard of that one, yeah. But for me, I always associate him and his score with three movies: On Golden Pond. Tootsie and My Bodyguard. There's just something about his music. And, and, and all three of those movies, if you think about it, right from the opening shot of all three of those movies, his score sets the tone. Like, there's the lake in On Golden Pond. Uh, Dustin Hoffman is, is putting on, like, stage makeup and spirit gum to his score mm-hmm. in Tootsie. And then Clifford is riding around Chicago here in My Bodyguard. So unlike the the worst score ever that I mentioned earlier from Neighbors, you know, I think Dave Grusin was fantastic, and and I thought I thought he was one of the best ever in terms of doing scores for movies, and it's just set the tone for the film. I think it works perfectly along with the direction and the acting, and it's it's a real you know big part of making you know sort of the feel of the movie. You didn't care for it, obviously. No, I, I really dislike. Wow. Again, that first thirty minutes, I was like. 
Oh my God, it's so boring. The music is terrible. Nothing is happening. I don't care about any of these characters. Like, get to the movie. I I was practically screaming at the at the television screen. It was just I I was having a such a hard time getting into this movie. I was just like well, the music was not helping. Well, I I, I guess I it, it was kind of like there was two movies in one going on here. So the the scenes that take place at the hotel, they're kind of played for comedy, right? Like I mean, the grandma's at the bar picking up men and. You got the dad flirting with the guests and the repair guys and, and that feud with Griffin, the assistant manager and all that. And yeah, the, I, even I would have cut all, yeah. all of that out of this movie. I don't think that added any real value other than to establish that Clifford, ha, you know, has this, his father works at this hotel and therefore he gets to live there. But like you had said earlier, oh, well, he's rich. I'm like, I didn't get the sense he was rich at all. I The opposite. It's that, you know, it's like when, Oh, my dad's a superintendent in this apartment building, so we live in this apartment building. But we have the crappiest room, and my dad's always on call. Like that was exactly the kind of thing I got out of this. The dad is the manager of the hotel. It's a fancy. They could be hotel. kicked out at any moment. Hmm. But it is a fancy hotel, and they did have a reason. Like the room didn't look that big, considering there was three of them that hmm. were, that were living there. But it's and again, it was like he got to eat food prepared by the chefs, but he had to eat it in the kitchen in the back. Like, you know, it was. I don't know. I just. Again, it was a detail that was sort of a nice to have, but they spent, in my opinion, they spent way too much time at the hotel um, and a whole whole slew of that stuff could have and probably should have been cut right I mean, out of this movie. The, the scenes at the hotel were, were almost played like a sitcom, you know, but... but they the, weren't even funny. Yeah, but I mean, it was played kind of like that, but I think that the scenes at the school are, you know, obviously 100% played for drama. And the thing is, like, the, the school scenes are very realistic, and there's none of that typical teenage antics like we mentioned like from the 80s movies like it was just this gritty kind of realistic life as a teenager just you're just trying to survive high school you know and like we mentioned there's there's adults there there's the principal there's the teacher the dad the grandma but ultimately it's up it's up to the kids to find find their way and and i mean we all went to school right so for those of us that you know experience hardships at school like it's kind of terrifying at times and and Clifford's not toffee he's not a big guy he's not a fighter he's got to find his way through it you know and he does so which brings me to kind of that final scene the fight scene so everything in the movie points toward this final scene I know you you didn't like it no I I, thought I disagree incredibly this, predictable and it was predictable like, if you didn't see this no coming, question if you didn't see this outcome coming an hour in then you weren't paying attention like I didn't I didn't need to see this. I mean, they needed to see it simply because they needed to tack an ending on the movie. But it's like, I don't know. It was so, so obvious. It just, I, I don't I know. Think I, a, I don't know how I would have done it any differently, but it just, it, I didn't care for it. But man, I mean, Clifford, the whole movie, he's trying to get his way out of things through through guile, you know, and using his smarts and his ingenuity, right? Yeah. But ultimately, yep. sometimes to beat a bully, you literally have to beat the bully. Like, you have to slay the dragon, you know? And the only way to do that sometimes is just by force. And the the whole situation with Mike, if you think about it, like, Linderman tries to let it go, right? He just tries to walk mm. away. First, first, Moody takes his motorbike and pushes it into the lake. And then when they go and they get it out, Mike is like, no, it's Moody's now, you know? And, mm. and they take it from him. And it pushes Linderman over the edge, right? And then and he fights Mike. 
you know, and then, and then, then Moody jumps on him and like Linderman can't defend himself and all that. And then finally Cliff jumps in and the, and then those two square off, you know, in these different fights. I don't know. I, I, that final scene, I think there's a lot of realism to it. And it's like, what happens when you finally fight back, you know? And again, what you're left with at the end is not a movie that's about sex and partying and misogyny and racism. This is a hidden gem, I think. It, it, it's just this little movie about the difficulties of being a teenager and being vulnerable. And I think sometimes that's something that a lot of people can relate to, even today. I have let my son watch this, my 12-year-old son. Last year, we watched this movie together, and he thought it was great. You know, he even relates to it. Not saying he's not getting bullied at school, but he's like, you know, Dad, these things still happen at school. Like, you know, like it's, some things never change. And I think growing up is hard. Growing up is difficult. And sometimes you got to take matters into your own hands. And then that's what we see here. So I don't know. I thought it was just a hidden gem of a film. And I've always loved this movie. No, sorry. Yeah, I didn't care for it. it. I, I mean, I, I watched it. I mean, it's not the worst movie you've ever had me watch. Uh, uh, there's been a few stinkers, but uh, I, I certainly wouldn't run out to watch it. You talk about the rewatchability of a lot of these old movies. This one to me. I would not rewatch it, but to your point, I think if I had kids or or if I had friends with kids that were about the same age as your son, just going into middle school or high school, sure, I think I think there's a lot of uh, a lot that they could relate to in this, even though it's what almost 40 years old now, or it is 40 yep, years old now. It's 40, yeah. Um, but I think I wouldn't just have a 13 year old, 12 year old watch this in a vacuum. I would have them watch it and then talk to them about how things have changed over the 40 years and how things have not changed over 40 years and how, you know, what what would be considered appropriate response versus what would not be considered appropriate response. And I think that uh, I think that that's the that's part of why I had a hard time with this one is I was watching it more with today's lens and I had a hard time sort of thinking back to well, what would it have been like in the 80s. So. Yeah. Anyway, Sometimes it is what it is. Some right? things it's, never change. You like it? I didn't. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I I hate to ask you, but you would just give it a rating out of ten for me. Probably a five, maybe yeah. five and a half, just See, just above a half. I would go up to a nine on this. I think. Wow. I think it's that good. It's just this emotional sort of hidden gem film that I think more people need to see. So that's what I think. All right. So anyway, on that note, let's have some fun with Caveman. <laughs> All right, my friend, it's over to you. What have you got for me? All right, so we uh, we just talked about uh, Matt Dillon and how we thought he was perfectly cast as the the bully in this movie. He was. And when I was looking through his IMDb, I was kind of flabbergasted with how many amazing directors he has worked with over his career. And to, to the point you made earlier, like, mm-hmm. he never really became an A-plus lister, but he appeared in a lot of movies that... Um, as part of an ensemble or as part of a, you know, a group, like I, I, there was, there weren't really very many where he was the standout a list, a plus top star of the movie. But, uh, but he had a pretty, he's had, and and I guess continues to have a pretty decent career. And for whatever reason, either directors like working with them or, uh, or he has a knack for, for working with amazing directors. So he's he's worked a lot. Yeah. Yeah, so I've got a bunch of movies here. It's we're not going to do the pick the flick because I'm going to tweak it a little bit, but it's like that. I will um, give you the year the movie came out and a little synopsis, but okay. I will also include the director because I think it's important to note how many significant 
directors he has worked with like that are now big names. Some of them maybe weren't big names when they worked with him, but have gone on to have remarkable careers. I, I um, like Matt so, Dillon a lot, so I think I might do good on this one. Yeah, there. I, I tried to uh, to to lean more into his work in the '80s, but he good. has had a few more recent. Uh, well, I mean, more recent past 1989 uh, successes. I could be in trouble films. with those ones, but we'll see. Well, but <laughs> some of them were pretty were pretty big, and they were by and in most cases like you know very famous directors. So I'm hoping that'll help. So, all right. All right. So uh, I, I can't remember how many questions. I think about twelve or thirteen here. Okay. So Liam, uh, we'll just jump right in. Okay. So first you're going to give me 19- the year in the synopsis, and I got to guess the film. Is that what it is? Yeah, I'm going to give you the year, the director, and the okay. synopsis. All right, go for it. I've worked, the, I've worked the name of the director right into the beginning of all the questions. So, right. Okay, so the first one's from 1992, written and directed by Cameron Crowe. This seminal 1990s film is an iconic, has an iconic grunge soundtrack, and the movie oh, features an ensemble of friends in their 20s mm-hmm. who search for love and success in Seattle, and even members of the band Pearl Jam appear yep. in the film. I saw this movie in the movie theater, and he he plays Bridget Fonda's boyfriend. He's like tall, and he's got this long hair and a beard. It was singles. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Uh, yeah, and the single soundtrack is is like one of the the key grunge albums that like everybody had yes. in the early nineties. Yeah, it was. There was a really, lot of bands. Yeah that I had never heard of until uh, I got the soundtrack for the, I, I actually got the soundtrack years before I ever saw the movie. And uh, it introduced me to so many Seattle bands that were just emerging at that point. So anyway, okay, uh, we're gonna go back to 1983 for the next one. All right. Directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Dylan plays an absent-minded street thug named Rusty James who struggles to live up to his legendary older brother's reputation and longs for the days of gang warfare. Was that The Outsiders? It was not. Oh, can I take another guess? Sure, take another guess. Is it Rumblefish? It is Rumblefish. Oh, Oh, nice. Yeah. All right. Uh, next one is from 2004. Ooh, director, director, director Paul Haggis was nominated for Best oh, Director Oscar, no, no. one for Original Screenplay, and one for the movie for Best Picture. The film earned his only Oscar nomination yes. for playing a racist police officer. Yep. And the film features Los Angeles citizens with vastly separate lives that interweave in stories of race, loss, and redemption. I mentioned this one earlier when I was talking about him, and it's Crash. It is Crash. He had a bit of a redemption arc in that film, which was kind of interesting to see, but he was still, you just hated him. You know? Oh, yeah, no. Yeah. He's never and been that's a real likable guy. <laughs> no, and I think a lot of actors, actually, that's when they earn, they get recognition for awards is when they play, like, a really despicable character. Mm-hmm. So... All right. The next one's from 1989. Okay. Was written and directed by Gus Van Sant. Matt Dillon gives a career best performance in this movie, a minimalistic, sympathetic portrayal of a junk addict trying oh, to go straight while he and his pharmacy robbing crew pop pills and evade the law. That was Drugstore Cowboy. Yes, it was. Yeah. yeah. I've never seen it, but it sounds pretty decent. Yeah. All right. One of his this best one, performances, too. This is one of the only ones I don't think you're going to get because okay. it's pretty new. It's from 2006. Yeah, I probably won't. 
<laughs> it's pretty new. Directed it's by so the funny. Some people, I mentioned that recently. I was like, oh, that's a newer film. And people are like, that's like 20 years old. What the hell do you mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> 2006 to me is very new. Okay, go ahead. Yep. Okay, 2006. Directed by the Russo brothers, who are best known for their work directing Captain America and the Avengers films. Mm-hmm. And in this movie, Dylan's character has just married Kate Hudson, and their best man, played by Owen Wilson, stays on as a house guest with the newlyweds, much to the couple's annoyance. I don't know. It was called You, Me, and Dupree. Mm. And Owen Wilson plays Dupree. All right. I, that was the only one I thought, mm, he's probably not going to get this. Okay. We're going to go back to the You're 80s. Right. I figured I, I needed to, to give you a nice slow wall over the plate here. Sure. 1984, directed by Gary Marshall. Okay. In this comedy, Dylan yep. plays a recent high school graduate, unsure of his future, who gets a summer job at a beach club. Yes. This movie is actually pretty good. It's the Flamingo Kid. Yeah. It was really good. I, it was I, very li- it, he was actually quite likable in that movie for a change. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, he's very charismatic in that, surprisingly. It was a good movie. Yep. All right. This one from 1998. I, I, I know you, you probably, I think you're going to get this one. Mm-hmm. Okay. 1998. So despite being billed second on the movie poster, Dylan is largely forgotten for his part in this erotic thriller. All people seem to remember is the scene with Nev Campbell and Denise Richards in the hot tub or Kevin Bacon's very revealing shower scene. I have not seen this movie, but I'm familiar with what you're talking about. And it was wild things. Yes, it was. Yes. Yeah. Nev Campbell. I'm sure. She was great. Oh, my God. Yeah. Whatever happened to that hot tub scene. God, she was a good actress. I liked her a lot. I don't know. All right. This night, so this next one's from 1985. Okay. Oh, I didn't even know who this director was, but when I looked him up, I'm like, oh my God, like this guy was huge before the 80s. Directed by Arthur Penn. Mm -hmm. In this action film, Dylan plays Gene Hackman's son as the two of them search for his missing mother who was kidnapped during a trip to Europe. Mm, I don't know. It was called Target. Target. Oh, Not to no. be confused with the department store of the same name. Okay. Yeah. Do, are you familiar with director Arthur Penn? His name sounds familiar. How, how do I know him? What else did he do? Um, yeah, his his IMDb was just like crazy ridiculous. He did The Miracle Worker, uh, Bonnie and Clyde, Alice's Restaurant, Little Big Man. I'm looking through his. his oh, Little Big Man. 20, that was that was yeah. a good one. I think it said he had won three Oscars. Uh, yeah, uh, nominated for three Oscars. Like, he was a big director. I was like, wow, okay. Um, and that was one of Dylan's first films from 1985. Okay, we're going to jump to the and 90s Bonnie and again. Clyde, you said, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. This one is uh, from 1995. This is another one directed by Gus Van Sant. They obviously got along. Uh, Dylan stars alongside Oscar winners Nicole Kidman, oh, Joaquin Phoenix, and Casey Affleck oh. in this film about a woman who wants to be a television newscaster and is willing to do anything to get what she wants. I saw this movie in the movie theater when it came out with a friend of mine. I hated it. I did not like this movie at all. <laughs> but it's to die for. Yes. I remember that. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I never saw it, but it was movie. a big it was a big hit at the video rentals oh, when we worked at Blockbuster. God, I hated that movie. It was terrible. All right. Uh, back to your comfort zone. 1983. Oh, I like this. I like where we're going. Another one directed by Francis Ford Coppola. And you'd be forgiven. 
if you forgot that Dylan was in this star-packed film featuring so many big-name actors before they became really famous, including Tom Cruise, Emilio Estevez, Rob Lowe, Patrick Swayze, C. Thomas Howell, and Ralph Macchio. Yes, Ralph Macchio. I mentioned this one. It's The Outsiders. Yeah, All right. Uh, I got two more on the list, okay. both from the 90s, but I think you got a good shot at getting mm. both of them. All right. 1998. This classic comedy directed by the Farrelly brothers features Dylan as a sleazy private detective who puts the moves on Ben Stiller's old high school sweetheart played by Cameron Diaz. I mentioned this one earlier. He was so despicable. There's something yeah. about Mary. <laughs> yes. God. All right. Yep. All right. Last one from 1997. Okay. Directed by Frank Oz. Dylan is reunited with his My Bodyguard co-star Joan Cusack in oh. this comedy where he yes. plays a famous actor who thanks his gay high school teacher during his yes. Oscar acceptance speech. And as a note, Joan Cusack was nominated for a Best Supporting Actress Oscar for her performance in this film. She was, and she was great, and it was based on uh, Tom Hanks, his uh, yep. his Oscar uh, speech that he gave. It's in and out. Yes. 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 So, star Kevin Klein as well, yeah. and Tom Selleck. Uh, oh, yeah, this man. this movie's great. I watched it recently, and I, I actually thought it held up pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, I did really so good yeah. on this one. Oh my god! I'm so yeah, good. I was. Uh, you 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 did better than I expected yeah, you to. I but like, I was movie. shocked. I was looking through the name, the directors: Cameron yeah. Crowe, Francis Ford Coppola, Paul oh, Haggis, god. Gus Van Sant, The Russo Brothers, Gary Marshall, Arthur Penn. Uh, uh, the Farrelly brothers and Frank Oz. I'm like, wow, like that's, if you were a performer and, and you're like, I've done movies with all of these directors, people would be like, holy crap. Like you must be outstanding. Cause that is a murderer's row of like yeah, no outstanding directors. Like it, I was shocked when I was Absolutely. going through it and seeing this. So yeah, when you put it like that and you sit back and you look back at his, his sort of body of work, he has done a lot, you know, he really, really has, you know, yeah. Never now, just been- in all fairness, Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- those were sort of the the biggest films. Like he's got, right. uh, let's be fair, he's got a dozen stinkers or so in there at least. Oh sure, so, oh, you yeah. know, as so many actors do, right? Of you course. do you do a, a couple of big ones that are successful, and then you're like, this is my passion project, and it's like, yeah, it sucked. And um, really, un- but other than the Flamingo Kid, he was never the lead. Exactly, and that that was the big thing I found mm-hmm. was in most of those movies he was at best the number two name, and in many yep. cases the number three or number yep. four name, but. You know, you 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 get cast and you you get typecast almost as a certain type of character or yep. a certain type of performer. But mm-hmm. he uh, he's obviously uh, he's obviously good to work with. If that yep. many big name directors kept coming back and and uh, continuing to put him in, uh, and his in his younger brother acted for a while there too. Um, yeah, was his he name? was in uh, the Entourage. Uh, Kevin Dillon. Kevin Dillon. He was in Platoon. Yeah, that's where I remember him from. Platoon. He but, was uh, uh, he was Johnny Drama in uh, the Entourage series. Right, right. I never saw yeah. that, but uh, I remember him in Platoon. Okay, so next time out, Derek, uh, when we come back, it's time for us to do another top five list. So we'll we'll announce that yes. topic on our next show. So I'm sure we're going to have a lot of fun with that. Uh, well, you and I have been talking about some possible topics for that one, so it should be a lot of fun. Yeah. So tell you what, until next week, this is Chris McBrien. On behalf of myself, our producer Sloth, and Derek Myers, I want to say thanks very much for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Leave 
please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show.